the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. Well, good morning. If you don't know me, my name is Chris. I am the pastor of worship here at Bethany. And I want to begin by saying that a sermon is not an academic exercise, primarily. Now, this week we might blur the line just a little bit. Um, because we have a lot of information that it takes to kind of get where we need to go today. Um, But Paul said that we should work out our faith with fear and with trembling, which means the way that we live in this time and this place and in this culture is a matter of the most utmost importance. Now, you all have a handout that you should have gotten today. Uh, If you're joining us online, uh, we're going to put up after the service today a PDF that you can download Uh, on the live stream page of the website. Now, I'm not generally one for handouts. That's not really my thing. Um, But this is a big story for us to tell, and so I wanted to give you some bullet points to outline it just a little bit. But it's the backside of that handout that's really the most important place, because this is a space for notes, but more importantly, a place for some reflection. Um, Don't let our sermon today or the sermon from Pastor Ali next week end without taking some time to think and reflect on this material and ask yourself some hard questions about how this might change your conversation with God that you are in the midst of right now in this season of your life in our culture. So, let's remind ourselves of the metaphor that's been driving our past series. Because while we finished talking about the 12-step process this past week— there are still a few things that we can suss out just a little bit more and we can learn from this journey that we've been on. Now, we began with a very simple metaphor that there are two places that we can be. We can either be on the mountain or we can be in the valley. And we really like those mountaintops. We really like the mountaintops. And I think that we often try to do whatever it takes for us to stay there. But the truth of the matter is that we are people who do not and cannot live on the mountaintops. We can visit them, but we live in the wilderness, the challenging wilderness of the valley, between the mountains. That means that we live in a time and in a place and in a culture. And you don't have to look too hard to see that our time and place and culture are not exactly perfect. But this is the world that we have. And there's a line in the serenity prayer that's going to guide our thinking over the next two weeks as we unpack this a bit. Taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as we would have it. Now, it doesn't help us to try to make the world something that it's not in effort to make ourselves feel better about it. That is trying to control something that we just simply cannot control. We need to recognize the reality that a broken world crafts broken people. We're not perfect just the way we are, because we were not born into a world that is perfect. And that brokenness has over time been molding us into its image. Everybody who lives in the valley reacts differently to a world that we cannot control. 
We all try to remake this valley that we live in into a mountaintop to try to make the place that we really want to live, to fix the failures, as it were. It's a testimony not only to the fact that we do actually believe that the world is broken, but also to the fact that God has made us in God's image, and a part of us really wants to create and redeem. But of course, we're not God. We are people who have been formed by this broken world, and so our attempts to fix it never quite make it. Now, Pastor Allie has this scripture that she quotes often to the point of annoyance sometimes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, you're not. no, I'm not. There is nothing new under the sun. Jesus also came into a specific time and a specific place and a specific culture. Or as one of my seminary professors liked to say, he came in skin and sandals and a zip code. Which is really good news for us, because if we do the work of understanding that time and place and culture, his context, as we like to say, that means that we have a concrete, tangible example that we can follow. So let's talk about that context, shall we? On the screen, you will see a map. Between 336 and 326 BCE, that means before the Common Era in scholarly talk, Alexander the Great led a lengthy campaign to conquer territory from Greece to Persia to India, covering over 2 million square miles. He was a busy guy. But his real contribution wasn't the size of this territory or the fact that he set the stage for the Roman Empire, but rather the culture that took hold wherever he would go. When Alexander would arrive in a place, he would declare the Evangelion, this good news that the kingdom of Greece had come. Does that sound like something you maybe have heard somewhere else before? He would bring schools and athletics and entertainment programs, art and literature. He would begin improving the engineering and medical infrastructures. And this is called Hellenism. Now, if some of that sounds familiar, it should. What Alexander started way back in the day is actually stuff that keeps continuing even right now. In fact, the way that you are sitting around in this room in kind of a, an arc facing a central platform with me standing here or sitting here. I like this table, by the way. This is great. With me sitting here, that is a remnant of Greek scholarship and education. Alexander was very influential and what he did lasted everywhere he went. Now, that's not to say that everyone was happy that he had arrived. In fact, this is where we come back to our driving story of the valley. Alexander's Hellenism became this cultural valley of a large area of the world, including where Israel was. And Israel had five major reactions to this valley of Hellenism coming to be among them. This week and next week, we're going to go through these five major reactions to Hellenism in Israel. The Sadducees, the Herodians, the Zealots, the Essenes, and the Pharisees. Would you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together today bring glory and honor 
to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right. First up, the Sadducees. After Alexander the Great died, the empire was partitioned off, and one of those pieces, the Seleucid Empire, invaded Israel. Now, this is actually where the story of Hanukkah comes from. And I'm going to let Pastor Ali talk to you more about that next week. But suffice it to say that a small group of people banded together to fight the Seleucids out of Israel and actually won. That was called the Maccabean Revolt. Now, in the power vacuum following that invasion and their defeat, the group that it would eventually become the Zealots looked back to Israel's scriptures to find out who was supposed to be in charge. And they discovered that there's this priestly line that had been put there by God. And so they found the descendants of this high priest from back in the day. His name was Zadok, who was a Levite. And so they handed the leadership over to these priestly families. There were seven of them. Descendants of Zadok, or Zadokim. You can kind of hear how that might work its way into the name Sadducee. With the expectation that as the priesthood ordained by God, they would keep Israel pure and holy and culturally separate from, especially the Greek influence of Hellenism in their area. With me so far? But here's the catch. Within 20 to 30 years or so, all seven Sadducee families became Hellenists. The people who were supposed to keep Israel wholly other, a shining city on a hill that would keep God's light to the world alive, compromised to the very thing that they were supposed to be avoiding. Now maybe that could be forgiven, because who doesn't like good medical care and sports? But what happens next is a whole lot harder to swallow. So the Greeks are now gone, but now Rome is coming. And while Alexander did in fact have an army, he still had things he wanted to offer the people that he conquered. The art, the education, the entertainment, all of that. But Rome? Rome was a military machine. And there was nothing on the table from them other than, don't fight us, pay your taxes, and you'll live. The Sadducees see that this is about to happen, and they realize now that their power is on the line. And so they turn to somebody named Herod the Great. Now, you may know this name because you hear the name Herod every year at Christmas. This is not him. Herod at Christmas, that's Herod the Great's son. Herod the Great was a spice magnate meaning he owned the spice trade. And I don't just mean like a part of the spice trade in the area, but no, he actually owned the whole spice trade in the same way that like Bill Gates owns Microsoft or Jeff Bezos owns Amazon. He was incredibly wealthy, one of the wealthiest people in the world, even by today's standards, which made him very influential, if you can imagine such a thing. And Jerusalem, and Israel in general, was a huge crossroads for trade. In fact, this is one of the reasons that it continues to be fought over. And so anybody who controls that area would be in a stronger position than they were before. So we have the group of Sadducees who know this, and they go to Herod with a proposal. They would help him marry into the Jewish faith, because of course he wasn't actually Jewish, And then he could become the king of the Jews. 
And in exchange, he would use his influence to protect the Sadducees when Rome came. The Sadducees quite literally sold Israel in order to keep their power. Their inherited power, no less. Power given to their families by God all those centuries ago. They slid so quickly into corruption to do whatever they could to keep their power at any expense. They were priests in name only, and so they used that to then acquire more and more and more. They still wore the facade of the priesthood, the robes, the titles, the pomp and circumstance. But aside from maybe a few days a year when each priest would actually have to do work, they pretty much got to do whatever they pleased. And so anytime in the New Testament that you hear the phrase, the chief priests, especially in the book of Matthew, this is who we're talking about. Now, not all priests were actually Sadducees. There were still priests in title and behavior who did not participate in this style of power. So if we go back to the Christmas story, do you remember Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist? He's a priest, but what the scriptures say about him is this. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife, Elizabeth, was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. Righteous in God's eyes is another way of saying that they are priests, but not Sadducees. So every Sadducee was a priest, but not every priest was a Sadducee. See what I'm saying here? The Sadducees were a problem for these other priests, because they would often just simply not pay them and then keep the money for themselves. The chief priest, who was a Sadducee, actually lived in a house right next to the temple with something like 17 rooms for just his one family. Wine cellars have been found in some Sadducees' homes filled with bottles of wine that in today's currency were the equivalent of about $10,000 a bottle. I've never had wine like that before. (laughs) So while Israel suffered under Roman occupation, the Sadducees are living the high life. They even had a paramilitary force of their own to enforce their policies, the temple guards. These guys are the Jewish mafia. Quite an accurate representation of that, actually. And all they are interested in is preserving their power at any cost. For example, in Matthew 21, we read this. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, The scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. But the leaders were indignant. They asked Jesus, Do you hear what these children are saying? So the leading priests and the elders, that's the Sadducees. And the people in the temple are selling... um, animals for sacrifice, for the sacrifice of atonement. And they would sell them at these highly inflated prices 
so high that even travelers coming from out of town couldn't afford those prices, much less the poor who were still a part of the citizenship of Israel. And so the Sadducees see Jesus overturning all these tables, their corrupt scheme, right? And their first response is to question the authority that others are giving to Jesus by calling him the son of David. We're in charge here. He can't do that. Or how about this? From Matthew 21. When Jesus returned to the temple and began teaching, the leading priests and the elders came up to him. They demanded, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right? Their question is about his authority. Who told him that he could say or do these things? Because, and this is the key here, it wasn't them. Or another, well, I could go on. There's a lot more. You should read the stuff about Judas. It's pretty crazy. But it's only days after this that Jesus is hanging on a Roman cross. What's that phrase? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. I guarantee that all of us can think of examples in our world today of people who use the guise of their supposed religion and belief system to gain power at the expense of others. Whether that be getting votes or money or prestige. But Jesus' words to them and to us are very simple. And if you want to be first, you must be the slave of the rest. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but rather to serve and to give his life to liberate many people. That's it. Jesus doesn't really have any kind words for this reaction to the coming of Hellenism. Just don't do that. At all. In the kingdom of God, power is always, always meant to be laid down for the benefit of others. So, how do you relate to the Sadducees? Anything you might have inherited that you may hold over others sometimes? Okay, next, the Herodians. The Herodians were the have-your-cake-and-eat-it-too people. Alexander came, and they said, Hey, theater. I like theater. That's pretty great. I'll take some of that. Healthcare. Who doesn't like to be healthy? Sports ball. I'll take some sports ball. Entertainment? Sure. Education? Sure. The Herodians were the Jews who wanted to be both Jewish and Greek to adopt the things that Alexander brought in without losing their Jewishness. And adoption for the, the Herodians was kind of a bit on a spectrum. Uh, some people adopted more of the Hellenistic practices than the others. There's actual ample evidence that Jesus actually lived among the Herodians for the bulk of his lifetime. Joseph and Mary, Jesus' parents, moved to Nazareth, which was next to a very large stone quarry. Now, Joseph, as many of you I'm sure know, was a carpenter. 
But carpentry back then wasn't like working with wood the way we think of it today. Carpentry back then was working with stone. Wood was a lot more scarce in Israel at the time. And the town of Sephoris, which is the town that's actually on the other side of that rock quarry, built a Greek theater. And we learn from a number of places in history that he used all of the carpenters in the area, which would have, yes, included Joseph. And Jesus was apprenticing into the family business. So Jesus would have actually worked on building this Greek theater with Joseph. You can even hear this in the scriptures because Jesus actually quotes Greek plays as some of the illustrations in his teaching. There's a play called Trojan Women by a man named Euripides. And it reads, there's a line in it that says, Troy, Troy, I long to gather you like a mother hen clucking over her fluttering chicks. Some of you may sound, hear that sounds a little familiar, right? So if we go to Matthew 23, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings? I promise you the connection would not have been lost on the people that he was talking to. Jesus used the stuff around him that everybody knew all the time to help them make connections to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's like a field that somebody bought. So given that Jesus is clearly familiar with this, I think that we can safely say that it's not the things of Hellenism that are the problem. The problem is that there's this worldview that necessarily goes along with them. See, Hellenism wasn't just based on the stuff that Alexander was offering to people, but rather that stuff was based on a cultural shift in perspective. Up until this time, everyone knew that the gods were the ones in charge. If you look at the gods of the ancient world, the Baals and the Moloch, and there's a whole lot of them, you will see that they are mysterious and demanding and usually pretty cruel. You did whatever you could to appease these gods because you don't want to get in their way. But with Hellenism came this huge shift. The gods of Greece were powerful, sure, but it was possible to manipulate them. And I don't know if you've ever read any Greek mythology, but boy, they look an awful lot like the Greeks themselves in the way that they behave. They're basically human with superpowers and some really weird relationships. If you did things a certain way, you could manipulate the gods into getting what you wanted. In other words, the gods moved out of the center and the self, me, moved in. So now we see the dilemma for the Herodian Jews. How much was too much? Because in Judaism, and now for Christians, God is still supposed to be at the center. Jesus said this, The most important commandment is this, Hear, O Israel, our God is the one Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, You will love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. Now, the self is mentioned, 
but not as the center. It's more like it's included on this list of priorities of things that then come from the center. If one worships God, we know that we can trust God, and God provides. Another way of saying this is that we are meant to die to ourselves first so that we can then live. But the Herodian dilemma is, how much do we have to die to ourselves? Like, all the way? Or maybe just about a little? The danger is how we participate in the worldview of our culture can start pushing God out of the center, out of that most important place of worship. So the consumerism of the Herodian worldview can start pushing God out of the center and replacing God with our stuff. Because who hasn't spent hours scrolling Amazon? The entertainment of the Herodian worldview can start pushing God out of the center and replacing God with our own pleasure or excitement because who hasn't binged Netflix recently? The athletics of the Herodian worldview can push God out of the center and replace God with pride in our own abilities. The art of the Herodian worldview can take God out of the center and replace God with our vanity, admiration at our own creativity. Now, that's not to say that owning things or having fun or playing games or making things and being creative are bad things in and of themselves. In fact, all of these things are a creation of God— as a reflection of his love. But they need to be rightly ordered in our lives and not replace God. Again, when God comes first, all else follows. One of the best definitions of sin I have ever heard is that sin is taking what God has created out of its proper place. So the question for us as we consider the Herodians is, Do we engage culture, or do we consume culture? The scriptures teach that we're to be in the world, but not of the world. And if you don't know where that is, if you go to John 17, Jesus says, Now I'm coming to you, and I say these things while I'm in the world, so that they can share completely in my joy. I gave your word to them, and the world hated them, because they don't belong to this world, just as I don't belong to this world. He's talking about us, if this was unclear. I'm not asking that you take them out of this world, but that you keep them safe from the evil one. They don't belong to this world just as I don't belong to this world. Make them holy in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus wants us to be his witnesses, his advocates, his living illustration here. Which means, among other things, we probably shouldn't look just like the broken world that we're supposed to be a witness to. We're still living in that valley, right? But if we let our valley habits and our valley culture define the way that we live, we're not much of a living witness to God's transforming power, are we? Because again, this is not an academic exercise. This is about who we are and how we ought to live in this valley that we call home. 
Again, are we seeing the world as it is, not as we wish it was? Are we truly living with a mountaintop mindset, engaging the culture here in the valley, but ultimately living with God's culture in mind? Or are we just living here, consuming the world as if this is all that there is? I think this is actually the same question for both the Herodians and the Sadducees. The Herodians consumed the things of the culture, right? The arts, the entertainment, etc. But for the Sadducees, it's actually more literal. They actually consumed the culture itself for their own benefit and power. Do things the way we want you to, culture. Which isn't super redeemable. Because while they're priests in title, that's where the Sadducees' connection to the kingdom of God ends. God's kingdom does have priests, but they're supposed to lay down their lives. So you remember, a broken world crafts broken people. The act of participating in something reinforces some behaviors at the expense of other behaviors. So the question is, are there ideas or behaviors moving us towards the ways of God or away from them. So the person at the mall who's, or the person who's scrolling Amazon to pass the time should ask themselves, am I becoming more or less focused on my own gratification as I stare at products designed to cater to my preferences? Am I truly imitating the way of Jesus as I yell at the refs in a football game or as I angrily type out a heated response to someone else's political opinion on Facebook that finishes with the phrase, just saying? Humility says, I am willing to relearn some things in order to love. But there is another side to this. If you were God and you were going to reach out to a culture to redeem it, would you use someone who has never lived there? Or would you use someone who speaks the language and knows the culture? I think it's worth mentioning that while each of these reactions to Hellenism that we're talking about this week and next week will show us something about ourselves, it is highly likely that you will most strongly identify with the Herodians. Because our culture has so much in common with ancient Rome. God can use transformed Herodians, and in fact, God did use them and does use them all the time. God uses the people who know the place to reach the place. Because Paul knew Romans, he could reach Romans. Because James knew Jews, he could reach the Jews. Because Lydia knew Philippi, she could reach the Philippians. Most of the disciples who became the apostles, that then became God's witnesses to the very ends of the earth, as Matthew wrote, or at least the first ones, They actually began as Herodians in some form or another. And in the same way, God can reach Connecticut with us. Paul wrote this. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. 
When I was with those who followed the Jewish law, I too lived under that law, even though I am not subject to the law. I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I am with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from the law so that I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. When I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. So, where do you see yourselves? Did the Sadducees have a couple of uncomfortable things ringing there for you? Did the Herodians kind of have a couple of uncomfortable things ringing there for you? And in what way is Jesus inviting you to be transformed today? Let's pray together. God, may our time together today have made you more able to reach us and you more real to each of us. You came. You came here so many years ago, and you are here with us now. And as we wrestle with the world as it is and abandon those rose-colored glasses that we like to wear, God, would you bring us peace here in this valley that we call home? Lord, would you transform us into people who can offer mercy and grace to the broken, speak truth with humility, and love without borders or boundaries. Help us to surrender to your call on our lives as individuals and as a church this day. It is in your name that we pray together, O God. Amen. And amen. Would you stand as you are able and let's sing together and respond.